Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Have you struggled with anxiety since childhood? When you feel anxious, do you feel it physically in your body? Do you struggle to calm yourself down when you feel anxious? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. About 31% of people in the U.S. will qualify for an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. But anxiety isn't necessarily something you either have or you don't. You should have some anxiety. After all, anxiety keeps you safe and encourages you to make good decisions. If you didn't have any anxiety at all, you'd become reckless and take huge risks. But many people have too much anxiety or anxiety alarm bells that go off at the wrong times. For example, you might not have any anxiety at all when you get in a car, but the thought of giving a speech might send you into a panic. Public speaking might set off your anxiety alarm bell, even though there's less of a chance you'll die from public speaking as opposed to riding in a car. But because you probably ride in a car much more often than you give a public speech, riding in a car doesn't feel as scary. Anxiety isn't always rational. It stems from a complex set of biological principles, past experiences, and current mood. But you don't have to allow anxiety to control your life. There are many different treatment strategies for anxiety, and today we're going to talk about one approach for managing anxiety. My guest is Dr. Russell Kennedy. He's a physician, neuroscientist, and the author of a book called Anxiety Rx. Dr. Kennedy's interest in anxiety treatment is personal. He struggled with anxiety for much of his life. But now, he says he's discovered how to heal the source of anxiety, and he's sharing what he learned with others. Some of the things he talks about today are why he thinks we should pay more attention to the physical symptoms of anxiety, how to heal old emotional wounds that might be contributing to your anxiety today, and a specific strategy for calming your body's physical response to stress. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Kennedy's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Russell Kennedy on strategies for addressing your anxiety. Dr. Russell Kennedy, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Good to be here, Amy. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this book, Anxiety Rx, not just because you're a doctor and you've helped a lot of people with anxiety, but it was also born out of your own story. Can you explain a little bit about your own anxiety yeah, throughout life? Sure. Uh, I grew up with a father with uh, bipolar and schizophrenia. So he was very loving and caring and kind and generous. And then when he would go psychotic, he would be none of those things. Not that he was ever abusive or violent or anything like that, but he would lose touch with reality. And, you know, as a young boy watching your dad, who you idolize, just kind of completely lose touch with the 
with the reality was really difficult for me. So as I grew up, I had this sense that, you know, life isn't safe. Love isn't safe. You know, it wasn't safe to love him and then have him just sort of disappear. Like he was there physically, but emotionally, mentally, he wasn't there. So that's kind of what started my anxiety, I think. And then, you know, you fire me into medical school, which is a, a crucible to start with. And that's what really, really got it going. I've always been a sensitive person for sure, but medical school really just fired me into the the complete anxious depths of my of my existence for sure. So th- that's what really started it for me. And your anxiety is it as an adult? Is it a little bit above about everything, or how does your anxiety look? It used to show up a lot as health anxiety. You know, now I just recognize it so much more as just the younger version of me who didn't get the connection that he needed and giving him that connection. As ethereal and kind of woo as it sounds, I mean, I was trained as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist and a developmental psychologist. So so it's really hard for me to kind of go into the more ethereal kind of spiritual kind of realms of healing. But that's really what it what it took. I mean, I was in therapy, you know, different types of therapy for 35 years. And until they really started addressing the somatic focus, the, the body focus, uh, I didn't get a lot better. And so what kind of like physical symptoms do you have that come with your anxiety? Well, it's not so much anymore. Like I, I, I my anxiety is, is a hundred times better than it used to be, but, um, I'd say gut stuff mostly, you know, just, you know, the, the irregular bowel stuff, uh, a lot of uh, acid reflux, that kind of stuff, when it bothers me. I don't get it so much anymore, but I know, I know when things are starting to get to heat up on me and I'm not aware of it, my gut will be the first thing that tells me that there's something that's not right. And in your practice as a physician, how many of your patients do you think came in with physical complaints, but it was really anxiety related? All of them. No, I mean, I mean, that's a bit, but in a way, you know, it really d- did show up. I don't practice anymore, but but uh, when I look back, so much of the physical issues were emotionally based. And I think in our society, you know, if you have chronic back pain, you're looked at uh, with a little bit more compassion than someone who's, say, horribly depressed. Because I think there is this stigma that, well, you should be able to fix this with your mind, right? So if you have a physical illness, it's kind of like, well, that's okay. You have a physical illness. So a lot of people, what I would see a lot of people who had emotional pain, specifically from childhood, would develop physical issues, gut issues, musculoskeletal stuff, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine headaches, all these kind of things that really had an emotional root more than a physical one. And then you, you, take, you go to a physical uh, medical doctor and they're going to give you a prescription. That's what they're going to give you. That's how we're trained. And we're really not actually getting at the root emotional cause of the problem. We're just kind of throwing a Band-Aid over a bunch of symptoms, typically. And I love medical doctors. I have nothing against medical doctors at all. It's just that we're trained in this highly pharmaceutical model of symptom relief, which we're pretty good at. But when we, when we hide the symptom, we also hide the, the energy to actually go in and change the root cause of the problem. Yeah. I used to have a therapy office in a doctor's office and it was amazing because our doctors would often just kind of like walk people down the hall and normalize that you might see your physician, but you also might see a therapist. But so many people would come into my office and be like, you know, I have this 
back issue and yet my doctor's sending me to therapy. Does that mean they right. think it's in my head? And we'd have these wonderful conversations about, no, it's not that they're doubting that you're actually in pain, but perhaps we can find some other underlying issues that might make your back pain a little bit better if we talk about them, if we treat them in a therapeutic way. And that opened some doors. I was in a very rural area where a lot of people weren't open to therapy in general. But sometimes when we normalized, like if we just treated mental health like physical health, we could treat a lot of things a lot better. Yeah. And I think just create more awareness around it too and make people feel okay about, you know, because they've been stuffing this problem down. If they were physically, emotionally, sexually abused as children, they've been stuffing this down for decades. Right. And it's, and that's the thing, like the energy has to come out somewhere. I always tell people, it's like, you know, if you have childhood trauma, it's kind of like holding an inflated beach ball underwater. You can do it, but it takes a tremendous amount of energy. And eventually that energy will come up. And almost always, because the body is a a representation of your unconscious mind, if you have a lot of trauma stuck in your unconscious mind, eventually that's going to show up in your body. The holding the beach ball underwater, that's a pretty good analogy because I would see people who were- I use it a lot. Exhausted. You know, they'd spent years and years and years trying to do just that and thinking that they were able to keep it at bay. Like, no, that doesn't bother me. It's just something that happened or I never had to deal with it, but I'm I'm doing well. But it usually came out in some kind of unexpected ways. Yeah. And, and then they would blame that and then that becomes the problem. So they come in with back pain or whatever- and, you know, you'd give them medications, they go through physio, I do an MRI or a CT of their back and it looked perfect, you know, so there was no physical real reason for their pain. And, you know, Alan, Alan Gordon wrote this great, great book called The Way Out, which talks about, you know, neuroplastic pain, how we actually teach ourselves to have physical pain, but really it has an emotional root. Because again, I think people will feel like they're going to be more accepted if they have a physical cause than an emotional cause because there's a lot of there's a lot of stigma attached to emotional, you know, unwellness. There certainly is. I think there's a lot of confusion about anxiety in general. About, oh yeah. Then part because there's so many different forms of it, you know, you can have a phobia, but you also might have generalized anxiety or social right. anxiety, and it manifests slightly different in different people. And then some people think you shouldn't have any anxiety at all, but you should. What do you find are some of like the biggest misconceptions people have about anxiety? I think the biggest misconception about anxiety across the board is that people believe it's in their mind. You know, I believe that anxiety, chronic, I mean, anxiety is part of human life. You know, you're always going to be anxious about your kids or money or whatever. There's always going to be, that's normal anxiety, but chronic anxiety, the stuff you wake up with every day. Almost always that's from sort of unresolved pain from your childhood and that gets stored in your body. So the short version is I think what happens to a lot of us when we're younger is that we experience trauma that's too much for our little minds to bear. It gets repressed, suppressed, whatever Freudian term you want to use down into the unconscious. And as the body is a representation of the unconscious mind, eventually that trauma gets offloaded into the body. So I can, I can find your trauma in your body. And a lot of somatic therapy is like this. We find the trauma in your body and then we kind of reverse engineer that to sort of go back into the unconscious. And then once we have the unconscious labeled a little bit better and show people that this is actually something from your past. And to me, anxiety is fundamentally a mind body disconnect. And it's fundamentally also an adult self, child self disconnect. 
So the child who holds our pain from our trauma, from our youth, we don't, the adult uh, in us doesn't want to go back and visit that child because they hold all our pain. And the child in us is like holding up their hands, like pick me up, hold me, protect me. And the adult's kind of like, no, I'm going to go on Instagram or no, I'm going to go shopping. No, I'm going to do this. So there's this disconnect between the adult version of us and the child version of us. And that child is, is kind of screaming at us through this alarm sensation in our body. And the mind being a compulsive meaning-making make sense machine through interoception, this process where the mind reads the body, reads this old alarm. And, and it has to do something with that, especially the left hemisphere, especially that analytical left hemisphere. It wants to know. So it will make up a reason as to why you're feeling this alarm. And that reason may or may not be accurate. And then what we do is we make up these you know, warnings, what ifs, worst case scenarios in our mind. And then we believe them because we made them up. And of course, the alarm in our body gets aggravated by that. And then the alarm, of course, makes the anxiety worse, the anxious thoughts worse. And the anxious thoughts go in and they make the alarm and worse. So we never actually get out of this alarm anxiety loop, this alarm anxiety cycle. So I believe a lot of therapists try to work more on the mind, trying to fix the thoughts of the mind, which is kind of like, don't think of a pink elephant. You can't really control your mind. Like you can't control the thoughts of your mind. But what you can do is start taking control of your body. And I do believe that alarm that's in our system is a remnant of our younger wound itself. And if we can connect through our body, through that unconscious track, that pathway of, of that somatic sensation of the alarm, we can actually start dealing with the root cause of anxiety rather than just chasing our tails by trying to fix people how they think. This is the first time in my life when I haven't had a pet. Up until two years ago, I had Jackson, a 19-year-old Himalayan cat, and Fiona, a 17-year-old English Springer Spaniel. Both of them lived on the sailboat and adjusted pretty well to life on the water. I miss them, and I look forward to getting another pet when the time is right. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of the family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency, LIM. Do you want to get high-quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan 
or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. That's a long, that's a long, that's a rand explanation, but that's really, that's the crux of the book and my programs and all that kind of thing. So let's start to break that down a little bit. When we talk sure. about childhood trauma, are you talking about like the, what some people call the big T versus the little T? Does it have to be like a abuse or a near-death experience? Or do you think just being bullied on the bus when you were seven? Yeah, it depends. I, you know, Amy, what I say to people is that everybody I see with chronic anxiety is a sensitive person. So if you're born sensitive, which just about every person that I've seen with anxiety is, it takes very little to actually push you into a trauma response. So there's some kids that are just really, they're, they're very sensitive. There's some kids that are very resilient. So if you have a resilient kid, sometimes they can handle the death of a, an uncle or whatever and do okay. And other kids who are very, very sensitive you know, their pet goldfish dies and they completely collapse. So it's really subjective as well. So it doesn't have to be physical, emotional, sexual abuse. It doesn't have to be big T trauma, but it's a combination of how sensitive that child is. And there's a great little saying that says, you know, the trauma of a family will land squarely in the heart of its most sensitive child. Mm. And I think that's what happens when I, as a family doctor, I would see, you know, three kids in a family, two kids seem like happy-go-lucky, whatever. One kid is the one that seems to hold all the pain. And I think that that's, you know, we are kind of like the gifted child in a way in that we are sensitive and it does show up with us with, with hypervigilance, with worry and that kind of thing. And it feeds on itself and it just makes the alarm worse and then it makes the anxious thoughts worse. And on top of that, you know, from a neuroscience point of view, when we get into alarm physiology, we secrete epinephrine and cortisol and norepinephrine in the brain, and that shuts off the rational part of our brain. So we move into the more emotional part of our brain. So not only do we make more threats, more worries when we're in this survival physiology from the alarm, but we actually lose the part of our brain, prefrontal, premotor areas that would tell us, hey, these worries, they're not accurate. So we make the worries and then we believe the worries. So of course, we're stuck in this kind of you know, never-ending loop of thought and, and thought will just continually destabilize you. It's learning how to get into your body and stabilize yourself in your body. And then you can look at your thoughts. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the adults respond to the sensitive kid, right? Sure. When you have the goldfish that dies and the other two kids are fine and you have one kid that's really upset, Sometimes well-meaning adults are like, it's okay, it was just a fish, or yep. well, we're going to go buy a new fish, and don't really understand, and maybe they even get teased by their siblings, that sort of a thing, which then teaches them, well, my feelings were also wrong, or I'm bad, or I'm weird for feeling this way, or for having these thoughts. Yeah. And some families, you know, like I, I see people all the time that says, you know, I had a mismatch with my mother. I had a mismatch with my parents. I had a mismatch with my whole family. You know, so they were very sensitive. The rest of the family really wasn't. So they would kind of look at them like, well, that's, they're a little odd. You know, that one's a little weird or whatever. And then they would feel ostracized by their own family, which of course would make them more alarmed, which would of course make their sensitivity worse. So they really got into this whole thing. So, you know, family mismatch is actually a really big uh, 
a really big driver of anxiety. The other thing that I see that's very insidious is people will say, my parents were great. My parents were really good, actually. They're still together, whatever. And then I will say, well, ask your mother if you had a separation from her or your dad before the age of five years old. And so many times people come back, oh, I didn't know this, but my mother had to go into the hospital when I was a year and a half for gallbladder surgery. She had complications and she was gone for six weeks. It's like, that for a child is hugely traumatic. And we don't really, we don't really look at that, you know, in, in, you know, cause we think that our childhood is kind of like, oh, you know what? Yeah. Everyone has a bit of a rough childhood, whatever, but some people are just really sensitive. And if your mom is away for six weeks, when you're a year and a half, that's going to leave a mark. And that's a good point that we don't necessarily have to remember those things that yes. happen to us. Cause a lot of times people think, well, if I don't remember it, it didn't bother me, but that's not necessarily true. Not the way the amygdala works. The amygdala never forgets, right? So we have, you know, there's what they call pre-verbal trauma, which is before the age of seven, and then verbal trauma, which is after the seven's a bit of an arbitrary distinction, but we can't explain it. You know, trauma that we have at four or five years old. We don't we don't have language yet. So we don't really have a way of explaining it. But what we do have is we do have these sensations in our body and we can work on that. You know, my wife, Cynthia, is a somatic trauma therapist. So you know, we kind of work together with some people and just sort of find where their trauma is in their body and just sort of reverse engineer that physical sensation and kind of go back into the unconscious, go back, track back into when this kind of trauma happened. Some of them are specific, you know, like an accident when you were a child. Some of them were long-term, like if you grew up with a, an abusive alcoholic parent, you know, those are chronic sort of traumas that affect your neurological system, that affect your entire body. And I think these, these old traumas get stuck in our body and our mind, and they act on us for the rest of our lives unless we can start seeing them. And just trying to fix the thoughts isn't quite enough. So when you say you work on, the, on finding the trauma in the body, what does that look like? Somebody comes to you okay. and it's a 25-year-old adult who says, yeah, I had these things happen to me as a kid. What do you do next? Okay. So, so what I'll do is, is I'll sit them in front of me and I'll speed this up quite a bit, but I'll, I'll say, relax your shoulders, relax your jaw, feel your back in the chair, take a breath, see if you can find the space between the inhale and the exhale, that little gap before the breath changes direction. And just elongate that gap a little bit. And then let's go back to something you really worry about. Say they, they have health anxiety, they worry about cancer. It's like, what's your worry about cancer? Or, you know, I go back into a trauma they had when they were younger, you know, when their brother fell off the dock and almost drowned. Now, go back into that in your, in your mind's eye, if, you can, if it's not too much for you, and then let's scan your body. Let's just see where that shows up in your body. And almost universally, if I do it this way, I can find... They'll say, oh, there's a kind of a pressure in my, my chest or maybe my belly. And I'll say, does it have a temperature? It's like, yeah, it's kind of hot, you know? And is it like a pressure or a pain? It's, it's like an ache, like a toothache. And what about a color? Does it have a color? Like, it may not. It's like, mm, maybe red. So I go into all these little sort of descriptors. And when we get into the description of where the alarm is in the body and what it looks like and what it feels like, often people will get memories that they haven't had for years. 
that came up around the same time of the trauma. Now, I tell people specifically, don't pick your worst worry. Don't pick your biggest trauma. Like, just pick something that causes you a problem. And, you know, if this is too much for you, open your eyes and we'll, we'll come back in. But that's what I do. The first thing I do is find their alarm in their body. The next thing I'll do is like, okay, well, if you've got that alarm in your heart area, can you put your hand over it? Can you kind of breathe into it? And can you kind of see that alarm as maybe you're a younger version of you? Can you see their eyes? Now, again, I'm speeding this up a lot. Um, can you see what they're wearing? Can you see how they feel? Can you see their house they live in? So I'm bringing them back into this felt sense of when the trauma occurred so that we can start moving it around a little bit. Because a lot of what happens with these old traumas that are never resolved is they stay in that same form for the entirety of a person's life. So if we can find the location of the alarm, this is what I write about in the book and in my programs too, we can often find the location of the wounded child in us. And again, as a medical doctor and neuroscientist, I want to have a seizure sometimes because it sounds so woo and so ethereal. But I went through 30 plus years of therapy and nothing really helped until I started doing this kind of work. And I, I, it's kind of an amalgamation of somatic experiencing, internal family systems. Uh, there's some cognitive stuff in there. There's some CBT. So it just, there's a bunch of stuff in there, but it's basically trying to resolve this old alarm and trying to match up the resilient adult in you now with the scared child in, that's still in you from back then. And then I will see, people will often have tears or they'll have an emotional sort of release when they put their hand over that area of alarm. Because again, I do think that we're reverse engineering back into the brain. There's a place called the insula in our brain that kind of is the mediator between top down and bottom up. And I believe that that insula creates this body memory, this emotional signature in our body. And we feel now as adults exactly the same way in our body that we felt when we got, heard that our parents were getting divorced or that when we were bullied at school. We feel exactly the same way in our body. So of course, our mind being a compulsive, meaning-making, make-sense machine is going to give us thoughts and worries that are completely consistent with that feeling. So if we can go in and resolve the underlying feeling the engine for those anxious thoughts is gone. And that's what I see with people. People will say, you know, I don't have the alarm anymore. I don't, I have the, I have the anxious thoughts, but I don't give them any credibility anymore, which is exa exactly what happened with me. So then to summarize, if somebody is, let's say they're at work and they hear some, maybe there are some rumblings of they might get laid off. Maybe yep. it triggers a physical symptom, very similar to when they heard, yeah, your parents are getting divorced. Something like sure. that stirs it up because they feel anxious physically and somewhere in their body. Then they start to have those anxious thoughts of something bad's going to happen. This is terrible. I can't cope. And you predict doom and gloom. Yeah. And then your body, and that's the thing too, is like what I was saying earlier, is that you shut off that prefrontal premotor activity in your brain that would actually allow you some rational thought in the situation. So you become a child, essentially. Your brain becomes child, but you don't realize that you become a child. You think that you, you're still acting with your adult sensibilities when really you become a child. And I talk about this when I work with couples sometimes too. It's like sometimes you know we pick people who basically replicate our childhood trauma. And off, we do it more often than we think. And then we get into these fights with our partner and 
you're not actually fighting with your 35-year-old partner. You're fighting with their seven-year-old. So Cynthia and I have pictures of each other when we're about seven, eight, nine years old in the house. And sometimes when Cynthia and I are having a little argument about something, I will go down and look at that picture. And it's like, this is who you're dealing with. Like you're not dealing with adult Cynthia. You're dealing with this child. And I'm also that child as well. So if you can see that, and I have just so much more compassion for her when I go and look at that picture, because I realize that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a child like that. And she's dealing with a child. I'm not saying that she's a child. I am too. So it's like, that's what's happening to us. Like when we go into these really alarmed phases, we regress back into childhood. And unless there's somebody there who can help us, who probably wasn't there when we were younger. So we can be that agent now that we so badly needed back then to see, hear, love, and protect ourselves. But we didn't have that back then. And what we often did as children is go into our heads because the alarm gets stored in our body. We don't want to have to deal with that alarm. So we go up in our heads and we ruminate. We create all these worries, this what ifs, worst case scenarios, because that's perceived as safer as actually just staying present in our body because we we were helpless and powerless back then but we're not helpless and powerless now. Although when we slip into this, we believe that we are. We go back into that same old childhood um, attitude towards our life that we had when we were seven years old and being abused or bullied or whatever. So we have to realize that, no, I'm not that person. I have to bring my prefrontal cortex back online, breathe, put your hand over it, use touch, use essential oils, whatever you have to do to kind of bring that prefrontal cortex back online. And then you can start acting rationally. And then you can start actually showing yourself that, yes, I can go into these you know, elevated fight or flight states. I used to play this game with my daughter called Sea Monster um, when I was in med school. And she would run into the room. She's about three or four years old. And she would yell, she'd yell out, Sea Monster. So I would jump up and I would start chasing her around the house. Like, and and I, I'd, I'd sell it. Like I was in there like, ah, whatever. And she would scream with delight and fear at the same time. And then about five minutes later, I'd have her on the couch and we'd have a nice cuddle. So what I was showing her, and I didn't know it back then, but what I was showing her was I can fire your fight or flight nervous system, your autonomic nervous system into high gear. And within five minutes, I can pull you right down in a deep, deep parasympathetic. Now, we don't get that as children. Often we get locked in that sympathetic stage where you know it takes us a long time, if, if ever, to come back into that parasympathetic relaxation state. So, and I think a lot of healing from anxiety is just moving our set point from this fight or flight side over to the parasympathetic side. And we have to do that kind of slowly because we won't trust relaxation or peace because often relaxation or peace in our childhood was shattered by some, for me, it was my dad going crazy in alcoholic families. It's another binge. It's another blowout. So we, we, our nervous system gets trained that there is a period of quiet, yes, but it's always followed by some explosion. So we never really get to lay our guard down and we always feel like we have to, to um, protect ourselves. Now, I'm doing a lot of talking here. I should, I should let you talk more. Well, all of that is really true. It's something I see in the therapy yeah. office that people are like waiting for the other shoe to drop when things are, are quiet totally. and silent for a minute. But how do, we, how do we calm ourselves when our, let's say our nervous system is in overdrive and then yep. you sit there and you're like, oh, I'm going to do some breathing exercises, but it doesn't, your body and your brain don't match up. Your brain's going a hundred miles an hour thinking about all the what ifs and this is terrible, horrible, and awful. And you're trying to calm your body down. How do you do that? 
Yeah, I think you need to use a number of different things. So self-touch, I think, is important. So if you do find where your your alarm is, you know, put your hand over that area. For me, it's in my solar plexus. Um, the physiological sigh is really helpful. You know, two quick sniffs in and a long, slow exhale, like a cycle of those. I have this thing that I do with my anxious peeps, and I and I sort of modify the physiological sigh. So for me, instead of two sniffs in initially, it's three. So it's really take a real deep breath in, open up the alveoli, those little sacs in your lungs, hold it for a second at the top, and then close your teeth and breathe out through your teeth like And as you breathe out through your teeth, imagine an overinflated beach ball. There's the beach ball again, like just deflating. So this is what it looks like. You know, you're in this sort of fight or flight panicky state. So it's hold and elongate that out, exhale, that hissing sound. And at the same time, in your mind's eye, just imagine like an inner tube or an inflated beach ball just, just deflating. And if you do three or four rounds of that, that will help you. The other thing that's helpful is essential oils. Find an essential oil that you like. Lavender, chamomile are really popular ones because you really want to go at this with as many physiological uh, mechanisms as you can. So if there's something, if there's calming music that you have, put that on. If there's a nice smell that you like, put that on. Breathing, you know, putting and, and touch, self-touch, finding that place of alarm, maybe doing some circles around it, that kind of thing. Because really what you have to do is pull yourself out of your mind because your mind will tell you it has the answer and it just has more of the question. It just has more of the problem. So you need to use every possible uh, avenue at your discretion to be able to bring yourself into a physiological state rather than a psychological state. And once you once you can resolve your physiology, like I did with my, Leandra when I gave her a cuddle on the couch, once you resolve your physiology, your premotor prefrontal areas come back online and you can start thinking more clearly. And then you start, you kind of break the cycle. And that's basically what happens. The opposite of that is that you just get more and more worried, more and more thoughts, which of course create more alarm in your body, which create more thoughts, which create the inability to see your thoughts is not real, and it just creates a cycle that you just can't get out of. So it's really using your physiology and moving away from your psychology. And the little mantra that I use for people is sensation without explanation. So I want you to sense, even if it, even if, even if it hurts, I want you to be able to sense your body, sense your breath, sensation, focus on sensation, because that will take away a lot of the energy that was previously fueling all those negative thoughts is now being focused into the sensation of the present moment. And then that will actually lead you into a place that you can actually heal from as opposed to just sort of coping with trying to change your thoughts. I love so it. So that's what I would do. I used to work with a lot of families and we would, for kids, sometimes make a, a calm down kit and it would be like the shoebox in the corner. So when the kid was upset, they would go do that. But then I found a lot of parents were like, can I have one of these? Yeah. And they might, yeah. that way when they were so anxious or so upset, they couldn't think clearly. Like they had a little shoebox somewhere and it might have anything from something that smells good to Play-Doh to coloring, something that they could say, you know, for a couple minutes, I'm going to calm my mind and help me figure out how to calm my body so that I can think clearly rather than go out there and do those things that they had done before when they were upset, like yelling or doing something that they later regretted or just pacing in a circle and fueling their anxiety even more. 
Yeah. And sometimes just seeing the box is enough. It's right. like Pavlov's dog. It's operant conditioning. So if you associate something with something that calms you a number of times over and over and over again, sometimes you just have to see it. Like I used to have people that had severe panic attacks in my practice and I would I would give them a couple tablets of, you know, a benzodiazepine like lorazepam or Xanax or whatever. Not a lot, but just a couple tablets. And they would have a panic attack. They would take the, the medication and then it would relieve their anxiety attack. And then all they had to do at that point was know that they had the pill in their pocket right. or their purse or whatever, and they were fine because the worst part of anxiety is you never know when it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely found that before too. Once people are like, all right, I have a tool. I can use it if I need to, but I'm yeah. going to try not to. And then they feel much better. Like when we have an escape route, we can get through things much better yeah. when we know that there is an out. For people who are listening, I know a lot of people feel sort of hopeless after they've struggled with anxiety for a really sure. long time. I've had so many people who said, you know, gosh, I, I wish I'd gotten treatment sooner because I, but for a long time, I either minimized it or told myself this was normal, or I just thought this was something I had to suffer with. But do you find for people who do have anxiety, like just give them some hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. I mean, I was suicidal with anxiety in 2013, you know, and then I uh, a friend of mine who saw how desperate I was, who was a plant medicine specialist, and not just psychedelics, but he was a specialist in psychedelics, but all sorts of plants. Like the guy knows everything. You go on a walk with him, he's going, oh, there's a banana leaf. You know, you can use that for inflammation or whatever. But he took me on a trip with LSD. And basically on that trip with LSD, when my mind started to sort of put itself back together, I was shown in no uncertain terms that my anxiety was actually this sense of alarm in my solar plexus. And it wasn't actually in my mind at all. So that really gave me a lot of hope. And for the last 10 years, I've really been refining that theory that anxiety has much more to do with your body than your mind. Of course, your mind plays a huge role in anxiety. I'm not saying that. But I think what most traditional therapies miss is this outstanding role of alarm, this old, unresolved wounding that's still in you, that's feeding your anxious thoughts. So once I started dealing with that, I started just feeling like, again, I had some control over the situation rather than I wasn't going to sit in a 10-hour panic attack every day, which I was back 10 years ago. And I often thought too, like, this is a life sentence. Anxiety is a life sentence. I no longer think that way anymore. And I had anxiety pretty badly for 35 years. I was pretty functional, absolutely. But I think I used the energy of my anxiety to accomplish. And then once that didn't work anymore, then I was completely at at a loss. I burned out of medicine. I left. Uh, I had to find a way out for myself. Well, thank you for all of that, Dr. Russell Kennedy. Thanks for being on Mentally Stronger. We'll link to all of your stuff in the show notes so people can find you. And I hope everybody goes up out and picks up a copy of your book, Anxiety Rx. Thanks, Amy. Hey, thanks for being here. That was awesome. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Kennedy's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that he shared. Number one, learn to recognize when your anxiety alarm bell goes off. Anxiety has several parts to it. There are the physical sensations as well as the emotional components. When we talk about anxiety though, we usually refer to the cognitive aspects like worry, or the emotional aspect, like feeling scared. But there are physical components too, and often those physical symptoms are what sets off the spiral. Your heart races, and suddenly you feel scared, and start thinking about everything that could go wrong. 
but it often happens so fast that we don't really notice how it started. So Dr. Kennedy suggests recognizing when your anxiety alarm bell gets triggered. You might notice that your body responds to loud noises or crowds, as if you're dangling off the edge of a cliff. It might treat specific situations like a life or death scenario. Before you jump in and try to immediately help yourself feel better, just notice your anxiety. Pay attention to what happens to your body and notice that your anxiety alarm bell is ringing. Number two, respond to the alarm purposefully. You likely have some go-to strategies that you automatically reach for when you feel anxious. You might immediately pick up your phone and scroll through social media. Or maybe you lash out at someone unexpectedly. When you were a kid, you may have learned to get rid of the anxiety as soon as possible or do whatever you could to feel better. But now that you're an adult, you have more choices, more skills, and more resources so you can respond to anxiety in a healthier way. You can learn to get better at responding to your anxiety rather than just reacting to it. Start by paying attention to the way you usually respond and resist that urge to reach for your usual go-to strategies, at least for a minute. And then pay attention to how your anxiety feels. And number three, put your hand over the discomfort and breathe into it. Dr. Kennedy suggests noticing where you feel the anxiety in your body and putting your hand over that spot. Then, just slowly breathing. He says this can help us heal the anxiety rather than just race to escape it. You might find that leaning into the anxiety rather than escaping it feels really uncomfortable at first. But it can help you learn that anxiety isn't as bad as you might think and that you can interrupt that cycle of catastrophic thoughts and uncomfortable feelings. Many of the people I've worked with in therapy have said that they felt like their anxiety became more manageable once they weren't so afraid to feel anxious anymore. When they viewed it as uncomfortable instead of intolerable, they started to heal. So those are three of Dr. Kennedy's strategies that I highly recommend. Practice recognizing when your anxiety alarm goes off, Respond to your alarm purposefully and put your hand over the discomfort and breathe into it. If you want to learn more of Dr. Kennedy's strategies for managing anxiety, check out his book, Anxiety Rx. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing strategies for managing anxiety, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, big thank you to my show's producer, who understands a thing or two about anxiety, Nick Valentine.